Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 120, Kimberly Frizan, Hashtag Believe Women and the Presumption of Innocence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Kim Frizan. Kim is the Earl Hepburn Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. Kim teaches criminal law, evidence, as well as seminars on law and philosophy. Our podcast today features Kim's recent article, Hashtag Believe Women and the Presumption of Innocence, Clarifying the Questions for Law and Life. It was published in Nomos Volume 64, labeled Truth and Evidence, which was edited by Melissa Schwartzberg and Philip Kitcher and published with NYU Press. In it, Kim explores a recurring tension in sexual assault cases. On the one hand, there are efforts to get society and the legal system to believe women who claim to be the victims of sexual assault, hence the hashtags such as believe women. On the other hand, there's the presumption of innocence that we traditionally afford defendants. How do we believe sexual assault complainants while at the same time maintaining the presumption of innocence? Are the two inherently incompatible, or can they be reconciled in some way? And regardless of the balance that we ultimately draw between these two principles, does it need to be the same in all contexts? In fact, is it even a purpose like the presumption of innocence, which formally only applies in the criminal context, to other areas where we see these kinds of issues, such as school disciplinary proceedings, employment, or even the court of public opinion. My discussion with Kim tackles these questions and more. Kim, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thanks so much for having me. Your article talks about an interesting tension that we see in the media and public culture and perhaps the legal system. On the one hand, there's this need to believe the victims of sexual assault. And for this, you use the hashtag believe women as the shorthand. And then on the other hand, there's the presumption of innocence. So what got you thinking about this project? I think you referenced the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing in your introduction, but was that the impetus for the paper or is the interest a bit more longstanding? So the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing actually was the start of this project. And before I really understood how Twitter worked or was on Twitter, I could see on the internet that somebody could post something and someone could reply to that. And what I was struck by was right after Donald Trump commented that if Christine Blasey Ford had truly been sexually assaulted as a teenager, she would have reported that, that so many people started posting on Twitter about their own experiences of having been victims of sexual violence, talking about how it had been friends and family and boyfriends or strangers, and that they didn't report these crimes because of fear of retaliation 
or they didn't want to acknowledge the pain they'd experienced, or they didn't want to take part in a degrading criminal process, but often they articulated the concern that they wouldn't be believed. And in response to that, so many people just replied, I believe you. And I thought that was so incredibly powerful and valuable. And I wanted to understand what was at work with even my sort of emotional reaction to seeing one person reach out and just believe someone who might be a stranger on the internet. And the first part of your paper in many ways tries to get some clarity on this idea of I believe you or the hashtag of believe women. And you offer a couple of possible justifications for this idea. Although I think you rightly argue that the idea is actually many different ideas that end up getting mashed into one hashtag. So maybe you can go through some of the different ways that we can think about this idea of believe women. It's absolutely right that I didn't try to argue for one particular conception, although I do spend more time on one than on many of the others, but I was trying to tease apart what people may think they mean by hashtag believe women. So some of those I took to be non-epistemic concerns, right? So one would be just an expression of solidarity and political rhetoric. The second way to think about this is to act as if you believe all women so that we can in fact serve other goals like increasing rape reporting. But then there could also be ways that we're actually trying to get to truth. So it could be an epistemic corrective that we've been discrediting women and now we should believe all of them and we may even out at getting to the right amount of belief. And although that may seem a little bit strange, I thought one way to think about this is as what's called a generic. So usually generics are a way that we essentialize either a person or a group, or it's a form of stereotyping. So you may think mosquitoes carry the West Nile virus, and yet very few mosquitoes actually carry the West Nile virus, or tigers are dangerous. And it's a sort of stereotype that isn't responsive to actually having a high probability. And you might think that hashtag believe women is about trying to get a positive stereotype out there. Now, it's actually harder to create positive generics, but it's a potential social epistemology movement to try to get us thinking more generally of women as believable since we've been discrediting them in instances of sexual violence. So the idea is that it's an overcorrection so that you can change people's baseline or priors in response to previous beliefs that were too far in the other direction. That's exactly right. So I thought that that could be the impetus for some people's use of the hashtag or some people's understanding of the hashtag. And so instead of just thinking also generally about the goal of getting to more truth, you might say, but that's not what Christine Blasey Ford was experiencing when she was saying, or when we were thinking about her thinking, I want to be believed. It wasn't this sort of general movement to believe all women. It was something deeply personal about having someone take your word for it. And I think in terms of that, maybe two of the leading contenders in the paper. One is from philosopher Miranda Fricker, who talks about the testimonial injustice that women experience, that they tend to have their competency and their sincerity discounted. And so Fricker urges that we correct our credibility judgments in individual cases to 
respond to our potential unconscious prejudices or biases against certain kinds of speakers. And then the other way that I talk about this is in terms of this call for trust combined with a view in epistemology called non-reductionism that we can take somebody's say-so as a reason for believing what they say. I want to set this up a little bit. So there are two big epistemological ideas for why we would want to do this. One is to change the baseline probabilities. The other is in some ways a baseline of respect, showing people some trust at the beginning. You also do seem to resist some of the more absolutist rhetoric in the space. The claims to believe all women, at least to start, seem to be something that you might be a bit skeptical about. Why is that? So I think that there are two ways we might be skeptical of that. One is just as in terms of getting to truth, if you really think the goal here is to get the right answer, then you're not going to get the right answer in every case if you always believe. You may think that it's a good rule of thumb because women are unlikely to falsely report, it's a costly signal for them to come forward, and therefore if you pay attention to baselines, it may be that in most cases or in many cases women are telling the truth, but it wouldn't get you to a belief that women are always telling the truth. I think the other thing that's going on though is an argument of let's believe all women because even if we get these cases wrong, sometimes we get more justice overall, but that's an idea of sacrificing justice in an individual case for getting more justice overall. And when we're doing that, we've just gotta be really cognizant of what the trade-off is here is potentially punishing someone who is innocent because we're following a rule that we think leads to greater truth. If we think that usually proof beyond a reasonable doubt is supposed to, in fact, get the balance a little bit different, right, and take seriously that we want to be sure someone's guilty, then believing all women is actually shifting the burden of proof. And we should just acknowledge that and have that conversation explicitly. So I think there are two things that I see also cutting the other way. One seems to be your argument about multiple epistemic claims so that, yes, we need to respect these complainants, but also that there may be others who are also able to make claims on our respect or our belief. So, for example, you point out the spouse or the family member or the good friend and there's this line in your discussion about how being a good friend might actually commit you to some degree of epistemic partiality. Perhaps you can talk a little bit more about that idea. Sure. So in the paper, after I unpack various ways of thinking about what hashtag believe women means, I want to think about how we use it in life and then how we use it in law. And so in the life category, I really do, as you know, push on the different ways that different values might interact. And there are philosophers who believe that we actually owe our friends, because friendship is valuable, some degree of weight to what they say that isn't necessarily fully in accord with what you would be doing if you were just seeking truth. Now, I should confess, I'm not convinced I believe that's true, that if my friend tells me she's a great tuba player, and yet all my evidence is to the contrary, that just because she's my friend, I should in fact believe that more. 
but there is certainly that strain in the literature that says, look, there are going to be other values out there besides truth. And when you make a claim, and so this argument was in response to the claim, even if you're told that your son or your husband or your best friend has committed a sexual assault, you should believe the accuser and not this person who's very close to you. And I was pushing back that this may be asking simply too much of people. And I think partiality is, of course, one of those potential reasons. Doesn't that just mean that the burden of proof may change depending on the context and not just context in the sense of legal determination versus some kind of court of public opinion, but also depending on your relationship to the person. So perhaps for the person who's your friend, there's a higher burden of proof for the complainant based on these obligations, which perhaps you're skeptical about, but the, the argument goes to the extent that you're supposed to believe your friend more or stand by your friend until the evidence is really quite strong, that that would explain why certain people are justified changing their burden of proof depending on who it is that's making the complaint. So I think that's absolutely right. And I do juxtapose that to a student who comes to me and says, look, I don't want to be called on during the rape shield discussion because I've been a victim of sexual violence. So the minute the student says that to me, I actually just form the belief that that's true. I don't ask for a medical record. I don't ask for a police report. Given that context, absolutely just believe it. And so then the question is, when you're saying in a case where it's a friend or a loved one, maybe the context changes. The question is, well, what's doing the work with why the context changes? Is it a separate epistemic value? Is it, I actually have more information? Is it that in fact, we have other values out there that are competing with truth? So I think we may wanna just tease out when we're saying the context will change the burden, why the context is changing the burden? Yeah. So I find this example that you make of the student to be a terrific one. And it kind of made me wonder whether or not the reason why it's easier to believe in those cases is just a simple cost-benefit analysis, meaning that there's not a lot at stake here and there's no reason to go looking for trouble by sort of probing that particular assertion by the student. But then it somewhat bothered me that it was cost-benefit analysis that was causing us to change our burdens of proof. So for example, I'm going to believe a friend more because it's too costly to me to have the friend think that I'm betraying them or something like that. And it almost seems like if this is really about the dignity of the witness or the dignity that we owe each other, that it should be independent of the stakes. So it's a good point. I think that epistemology in general is sort of working through how stakes can matter to belief and knowledge in really interesting ways. If somebody says to you, are there any nuts in your cookies? If in fact, it's just because somebody doesn't really care for nuts, you may be quite confident in saying, no, I know there's no nut ingredient. And the minute someone says, oh my gosh, I'm going to die if you give me any nuts, you will start to doubt that you actually know that thing is true, which is really interesting just about how our level of confidence seems to shift if the stakes get high enough. I do think, though, that when you point out, well, the stakes would be really high for me if I, in fact, were to believe this of someone I love, certainly there's something really strange about saying, well, I don't want to believe the truth because it would be too costly for me. But we may just think that there's a whole bunch of different values going on. So take the other side of it. Well, maybe it's best if we believe all women because we will get to the truth in most cases if, in fact, we just adopt a rule of 
always believing. But asking someone to adopt that rule when it's their loved one involves a lot more sacrifice, right? And so if the push of Believe All Women isn't grounded in an epistemic concern, but it's grounded in truth more generally, not truth in this particular case, then it may be asking too much of the loved one not to stand by her spouse or best friend when that person is accused of sexual violence. So I think it's really important to tease out exactly what the claim for Believe All Women is and then exactly what the claims are going to be on the other side. And so it could have written 50 pages just on trying to tease out all of the different potential concerns. I think this is really tricky and we can sometimes get a little bit flat-footed in thinking that when an epistemic concern is hitting a non-epistemic value. So that's a great segue to where you go next in your paper, which is you go from in everyday life and then to law. And in law, it seems that we take a much more skeptical or distrustful view of witnesses or complainants in general. So you point out, of course, that the model penal code has promptness requirements and corroboration requirements, even though some of these have been abolished in various states. And if I think I read you correctly as saying that at least some of the skepticism, maybe not in those specific instantiations, but some of the skepticism in the legal system is perhaps less bothersome. Why is that? To take a step back, I really like and spend more time on this sort of non-reductionist view of getting to belief, which, and then I think that it crumbles a little bit when we get to law. So The non-reductionist view that I push is the idea that, in fact, sometimes we are allowed to take something as true simply on someone's say-so. And so epistemologists distinguish between people who say you're only permitted to believe something if, in fact, their testimony is reducible to something else, whether it's that we look for demeanor, whether it's inference to the best explanation, but some other way of gaining knowledge. Whereas non-reductionists say, no, you actually can know things merely based on someone else's testimony. And what I thought was interesting about the non-reductionist view is that it was always grounded in a particular kind of respect for speakers, that it was the only view that said, the reason why you should believe X is because you believe the person that acts, that they are coming forward, offering you some assurance, and in fact saying, believe me. And so believe me that this, and so you're believing this entails a certain amount of respect for them. I thought that part of what was going on with hashtag believe women was a claim of being owed trust or respect at some level that then leads to a belief in the proposition that the person asserts, or it's permissible to believe in the proposition that the person asserts. So the problem when you get to law is that it looks thoroughly reductionist. We are constantly looking under the hood. We are assessing demeanor. We are looking at what other people say. And so it doesn't look as though we are in some ways respecting the speaker. And what I conclude is it is true that law can't get you all the way to belief but we can still give women the respect or the trust that they're owed. And we can then increase the credences in what they say, but we're not going to get to full outright belief in law. I want to tack now to the presumption of innocence. So your paper is not just about hashtag believe women, 
but also the presumption of innocence, which was the rhetoric that was frequently trotted out by supporters of the Kavanaugh nomination. And that too seems to represent multiple ideas at once as well. So how does the presumption of innocence start to unpack in this context? I think that ultimately what the presumption of innocence in life really means is that we've got to ask, what do we owe each other? And when there are contested factual situations, what's the default position? And yet what we think is going on when someone invokes the presumption of innocence is that we're invoking the criminal justice view of the presumption of innocence, which has really two questions. One is, what's the burden of proof? And what do we mean by the presumption? So in terms of the burden of proof, it is true that in the United States, in criminal cases, the presumption of innocence stands for you're entitled to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And it really, in the United States, doesn't stand for anything else. The European Convention on Human Rights gives a broader context for the presumption of innocence. They think that, for example, if a police officer comments on a case, on a pending case, that that can violate the presumption of innocence. That's not the United States understanding. But even theorists who think that the presumption of innocence should have greater mileage and teeth than it currently does, so that maybe it's implicated in Fourth Amendment search and seizure or in Fifth Amendment self-incrimination, no one thinks that in those cases, what you're entitled to is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, right? You're not entitled to proof beyond a reasonable doubt before the police, in fact, uh, you know, conduct a search. So what we have to realize is that Whatever proof beyond a reasonable doubt is about, it's a normative question about given the particular stakes, what do we owe someone before, in fact, we visit a harm upon them? The other question within the criminal justice system, at least, is that are we saying that we're really supposed to believe that they're innocent or just admit that we have no evidence of that? And at least in the U.S. legal system, I think the best interpretation is just the we have no evidence one way or another. So there's nothing about that that's easily exported into life. Instead, what's really going on is a claim, I'm entitled to some degree of due regard and respect until you have some evidence that speaks against me. That, I think, is really what's going on with the presumption of innocence when it's invoked in life. But we just keep getting confused and thinking we can export proof beyond a reasonable doubt anytime it's invoked. So in many ways, this is why the juxtaposition that you've created here is so interesting, right? Because on the one hand, hashtag believe women has this dignitary interest that a person or a speaker is entitled to some degree of trust to begin with. And at the same time, this is also that the accused is entitled to some kind of respect or, or dignity before all the allegations are proven. And then it becomes very difficult to square both of those interests at the same time. So we surely can't hashtag believe women and presume innocence at the same time, or can we? That was the thing that I had trouble getting straight in my mind. Well, I did too, which is probably why I thought I'll just lay everything out and let the next smart person figure this out. But I do think that we may be able to square them in that the question becomes, once someone comes forward with testimony, if I start with a baseline of thinking well of Abe, and then after someone comes forward with an accusation, shouldn't that in fact change my view of Abe? Why is it that respecting him 
means that I can't credit what someone else tells me. So it may be that, in fact, we should start with baseline of respect, but that testimony can be the kind of thing that overcomes the rhetoric of the presumption of innocence in any individual case. And part of the problem is we keep thinking that someone coming forward with testimony is in some ways meaningless or There were some newspaper articles where someone would say when Christine Blasey Ford came forward with testimony, there was still no evidence. And that's just a confusion. Of course, someone coming forward with testimony is, in fact, evidence. Even if you're a reductionist who looks for further facts, that's not looking for corroboration. And so it may be that when we respect someone's testimony, that means that we do move off the presumption of innocence for the person who's accused. And then I think the other piece of that, too, is by your distinguishing the legal context from the everyday context, that we don't necessarily impose the beyond a reasonable doubt standard to determinations in an everyday life context. Uh, Others have also written about this, I think, as well, which is, for example, if you're talking about a school disciplinary proceeding, it doesn't necessarily have to be beyond a reasonable doubt, which tends to be reserved for the criminal context, nor do you necessarily have to do this in a Supreme Court nomination hearing context as well. I think that's exactly right. And in the Supreme Court nomination context, the question was, what's the default here, right? So why was the default, you are entitled to this position unless it is proven beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed this act of sexual assault when you were a teenager, right? Why would we think that that's the appropriate question as opposed to, no, in a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, you actually have to show by some burden that you are in fact qualified. So I think that in the Supreme Court confirmation hearing, it wasn't even clear what the default setting was if a burden wasn't met. The traditional final question on this podcast is what's next? So does this project connect up with other projects that you have on the horizon? What, where does this go from here? So I have just completed another paper. Um, I guess I'm continuing my hashtags, but it was hashtag we too. And it was really looking at how the success of the Me Too movement was the success of multiple allegations. So if you think of where this project leaves us, which is, Well, if in fact the accused is entitled to a degree of respect, and then we may credit someone's testimony, but then sometimes when we credit someone's testimony, that might not get us to the threshold of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, then you do start realizing that most of the cases that get us to that threshold are cases where multiple people come forward against a single perpetrator. And one thing I push in that paper is the question about whether this is ultimately good for either victims or for perpetrators, right? So on the victim side, what does it mean to say that we won't recognize an instance of sexual violence unless you do have corroboration by other people having also been victims? And on the defendant side, I think that there are incredibly tricky questions about whether the evidentiary rules should allow in these other instances of sexual violence. I think sometimes we're relying on propensity evidence that I think is deeply problematic. So I don't offer further answers in the next step, but I try and further problematize the deep conflict between wanting to take seriously sexual violence and it in our criminal justice system, and at the same time, wanting to be fair to people who are accused of sexual misconduct. 
I love that project. I've long thought a lot about this question of whether or not it violates the propensity rule to bring up the other allegations, but I think that's for another time. Well, Kim, thanks for pressing on this really interesting tension between hashtag believe women and the presumption of innocence. Great having you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Like all good work, Kim's article in many ways identifies and raises more questions than it answers. Sexual assault allegations often raise difficult questions of proof. On the one hand, there are the obstacles that prevent or discourage victims from seeking justice against their assailants. Many of the historical, formal, and legal obstacles, like the corroboration rule or various other kinds of reporting rules, these obstacles have been eliminated in the modern courtroom, but various cultural obstacles remain. And so to encourage victim reporting and to address the problem of sexual violence, we see efforts like hashtag believe women. On the other hand, efforts like hashtag believe women quickly run up against the presumption of innocence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. If we're going to give the accused the benefit of the doubt, as we unquestionably do in the criminal context, then we can't uncritically believe all accusers. And so there's this difficult balancing act between respecting and protecting victims and their testimony and simultaneously respecting and protecting defendant rights. Acquittals do not necessarily imply a lack of belief in victims, though understandably, it's not always so easy for victims to feel that way. And this is why Kim's thoughtful unpacking and parsing of the ideas behind hashtag believe women is so important. As lawyers, we're trained to be precise and analytical, and so it's important to move beyond the rhetoric or the hashtags and to dig into exactly what the values and interests are that are at stake in these debates. Finally, as Kim and others have noted, outside of the legal system, as a society, we often just don't think very carefully about burdens of proof. The standard of proof for sending someone to prison surely shouldn't be the same as the standard of proof for being expelled or disciplined at a university, or to be passed over for an honor or an award, such as being appointed to the Supreme Court. Obviously, lowering the standard of proof will create more false positives and the risk of unfairness to the accused. But that's a cost that's always true just as raising the standard creates more false negatives and the risk of unfairness to accusers. But given that nothing is ever a sure thing, the only hope is that in tailoring the standards of proof to specific contexts, we can do our best in balancing the interests that are at stake. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Renee Hawkins, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, 
under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.